Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. It is, of course, the day after Election Day, and this is almost exactly what we were told to expect. The polls closed last night, but there are hundreds of thousands of votes that need to be tallied still here in the state of Michigan, and there are millions of votes nationwide that are yet to be counted. There are several states hanging in the balance, and Michigan is one of those uh, that will decide who the next president of the United States is. Although it's easy to jump to conclusions at this point, it's really important, so important, to be patient and wait for every vote to be counted. That's where we want to begin the conversation today with the idea of being calm, being patient, and waiting for this process to play out before reacting too much to what you think the results are going to be. I know that's hard, uh, partially because of the constant noise that is around us about the election from social media, from 24-hour cable news. I am as glued to those things as anybody is right now. But I also think that we have to take a pause sometimes and really think about uh, how important it is to value the things that are actually happening right now. The turnout itself in this election is the story to me. No matter who wins the presidency, the idea that so many Americans have decided to exercise their right to make that decision is huge. The expansion of the franchise is a story that is as old as the country itself. It is one of the most bitter struggles that has unfolded uh, in the story of America. And the idea that in 2020, we will hit unbelievable records of people showing up to exercise their right to vote uh, is huge. It's an important thing to keep in mind as we wait to determine who the winner is and who may be losing the presidential contest. It shouldn't be long. Uh, just before we went on air, I saw a new update to the tallies here in the state of Michigan that suggest that perhaps Joe Biden, the Democratic nominee for president, has pulled ahead of Donald Trump, the president of the United States. Uh, we are getting closer and closer to that point where we have counted the votes or counted enough of them to be able to say what the outcome is. But for now, we do have to be patient and we should all be really calm. I want to welcome someone to the conversation this morning who's going to help us sort through what we know, what we don't know, and when we should expect to know all of the details about election 2020. He is Zach Gorchow. He is the executive editor and publisher of the Gongwer News Service in Lansing. Zach, as always, great to have you here on Detroit Today. Great to be with you, Stephen. So typically on the next election night, you are tweeting a lot of analysis of numbers coming in in real time. You did not do very much of that last night, and that was a change. Talk to us about why this year was different for you. Well, because we had this situation with the pandemic where the bulk of Democratic voters decided to vote via absentee ballot and the bulk of Republican voters decided to go to the precincts on Election Day, 
Uh, and because, depending on the jurisdiction, one of those sets of votes is getting counted first, usually the election day voters, I just didn't feel good about trying to read or infer anything into these early numbers uh, because they were, you know, they were going to be skewed uh, depending on whether the absentees or the election day votes were counted first. So, um, you know, I wanted to see a lot more come in before trying to draw any conclusions. And just because I think everyone is really sensitive, you know, to bad information spreading on social media, I wasn't going to personally contribute to that. And I, I just figured better safe than sorry. Yeah. Um, I, I wonder what you make of the difficulties that we're having right now, being able to speak with certainty about the way that things are going in, not just in Michigan, but but nationwide. Is this anomalous in the sense that it's about the pandemic, it's about the number of of early votes that have come in, or is this a signal of a change, the kind of thing that that we will have to get used to, uh, not knowing uh, on election night who is the winner in, in, in some races and not even knowing in, in many cases what to make of, of the vote counting itself? Well, I think the question is, does the movement toward people voting absentee, is that, is that a permanent condition or two years from now, four years from now, you know, hopefully when we're no longer in a pandemic, do people decide, you know, I like going to the polls and voting. Um, you know, it is, you know, there is a certain ease of voting absentee where you don't have to stand in line for an hour or whatever. Um, I, I, I don't know if this is anomalous or not. It's just going to take time to figure that out. Um, but what we do know is, um, at least under the way Michigan law is structured, uh, it takes a lot longer to count absentee ballots than Election Day votes. Um, you know, if Michigan decides to go to more of a, an Ohio or Florida model where uh, absentee ballots can be tabulated, you know, process, the processing and tabulation can start before Election Day, mm-hmm. uh, then we'd have a count, you know, much sooner. You know, I think we saw Florida was done, you know, close to done pretty quickly. Ohio was almost done pretty quickly. But, you know, in states like Michigan and Pennsylvania, where uh, for the most part, you can't really start doing much with the absentee ballots until, uh, you know, election actually, election day actually starts. It takes longer. Yeah. I, I thought last night watching as things unfolded, it was really interesting that Florida, which you were just talking about, was so fast and so efficient with its count 20 years after, of course, Florida was the ground zero for the dispute over the 2000 election and ultimately the state where halting the vote count delivered the presidency to to George W. Bush. A lot has changed in Florida over those 20 years in terms of how they cast ballots and how they count them. Now they seem maybe like a model for the rest of us. Yeah, who would have thought after the debacle of 20 years ago that they uh, seem to have their act together, but uh, they do. And, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things. I mean, people want to know the results sooner than later, of course. Um, but, you know, obviously for much of the nation's history, uh, that wasn't really possible. It's more of a, 
you know, current media age, you know, expectations of instant information uh, that people would like to know uh, the night of. And, you know, if we end up not knowing until tonight or a couple of days from now, I don't know that it really makes a great difference. Mm-hmm. You know, it would be more if it, if this stretches for a month, then yes, that would be unsettling, I think. But, uh, um, you know, a couple of days I don't think is overly concerning. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking with Zach Gorchow, executive editor and publisher of the Gongwar News Service in Lansing. Of course, we are talking about the election, which happened yesterday. But of course, the results from the election aren't quite in yet. Not here in Michigan and not nationwide. Uh, we want to hear from you as well. How are you feeling as votes continue to be counted here in Michigan and several other key states. Uh, Are you surprised by anything you've seen since the polls closed last night? Are you surprised by how close things seem uh, in in both in Michigan and in the national contest? Uh, Give us a call also and let us know how you're feeling about things. Does all of this uncertainty, the waiting, the patience that's required, does it make you anxious about what the outcome might be? Does it make you anxious about the state of our nation? Uh, the number of people voting is off the charts today. I think universally we can agree that's a good thing. Uh, but a lot of people will be very concerned that the number of people who voted for Donald Trump seems to has have grown over 2016, something that I'm not sure everybody expected. And what does that mean in terms of governing the country going forward? What does that mean in terms of us being able to live together in uh, one country going forward? Those are the questions that are going to linger far after the votes are counted. Uh, In a little bit, we're going to be joined by uh, Farai Chidea, journalist, author, and host of the new radio show and podcast, Our Body Politic, to talk about some of those cultural Implications. She has been tweeting up a storm uh, since uh, the election uh, ended yesterday about all of those dynamics, all of the wrinkles that will sort of come out of this election and be with us for some time. That should be a really interesting conversation. But for now, of course, we've got Zach Gorchow, the executive editor and publisher of Gongwa News Service in Lansing. We're talking about Michigan results. Again, give us a call, 313-577-1019 on the phones. Let us know what you're thinking, how you're feeling the day after the election. Uh, also tell us about surprises that uh, you saw or are expecting to see out of the results. Before we get to our listeners, Zach, I want to talk to you about the results here uh, here in Michigan. As I said, right before we went on air, I saw some indication that in the vote count, and we should be clear about that, in the vote count, uh, Joe Biden has taken a small lead here in Michigan over over Donald Trump. I assume that is because the ballots that are that are being counted right now, the remaining ballots, most of them are from here in Wayne County. They are the the mail-in absentee uh, ballots. But but give us a sense of where you think things are now and where they appear headed. I mean, so overall, uh, the the Democratic dream of a Biden um, wipeout in Michigan, where he take you know wins Michigan by eight to ten percentage points, that clearly died at about midnight this morning, and it became clear it was going to be more the scenario of him needing to eke it out uh, by a you know one to three points, something like that. It looks like he's on course for that. 
there's a lot of vote from Grand Rapids, which is heavily Democratic, the mm-hmm. city of Grand Rapids that has not been counted. Wayne County is not in there. Uh, Oakland County is almost done, but the number, you know, what has continues to come in continues to help Biden. Um, there is some vote from Macomb that's still outstanding uh, that that could benefit President Trump. Um, but overall, the the outstanding the vote that's out there as it continues to be counted should uh, benefit Joe Biden. But you know, when the numbers are this close right now, mm-hmm. it, you, you, you hesitate to make any definitive declarations. Yeah, it's close, just as it was. Four years ago, when the president won uh, won Michigan by, I believe, twelve thousand votes or, or or somewhere around that. I mean, that's a that's a very very narrow ma- margin. I suppose it could be just as as close this year. Uh, give me a sense of some of the other races. We also have the Senate race here in Michigan. John James, uh, the Republican challenger to Gary Peters, had a substantial lead when I went to bed last night. But again, once I got here to the radio station today, that lead also seemed to be narrowing as you count these votes in in Democratic strongholds. Uh, Where's that race right now? Uh, Well, John James still has a small lead there. Uh, He, as expected, is running ahead of Donald Trump. Uh, He's doing better, oh, by about 70-some thousand votes. Mm -hmm. He's got about 70,000-some votes more than Donald Trump and about a 31,000 vote lead over Gary Peters right now. Um, you know, just too close to call. Uh, you know, the outstanding vote again should help Peters somewhat. But, you know, I, I you look at some of the numbers that have come in and it just it has to be concerning for the Peters people. I mean, Gary Peters is from Bloomfield Township. He's mm-hmm. from Oakland County. Mm-hmm. And yet he's getting about 15,000 votes less out of Oakland County than Joe Biden. Um, You know, this should be an area where he's running better Mm -hmm. than he is. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, John James, interestingly, is not, even though statewide he's running ahead of President Trump, that's not true across the board. There are some parts of the state where he is underperforming Trump. So we'll have to watch what's still out there. And, you know, that's going to be real. That's going to really determine whether he can hang on here. But this was a race the Democrats were really nervous about. Um, And, you know, it looks like they're going to have to sweat it out Uh, again. You know, once, you know, Grand Rapids comes in, once the rest of Wayne County comes in, uh, that could tip the balance to Senator Peters. But this this is really close. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. I want to get to some of our callers here who want to talk about the day after. Let's start with Vera in Dearborn. Vera, welcome to the show. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I'm deeply disappointed, um, and I I just have this sense of doom. um, And I, you know, I tried to keep my hope contained. You know, <laughs> um, I didn't do a very good job of that. Um, but, I, you know, for me, it's more of to see the direction the country, big parts of the country is going and um, our values and principles and um, that a person can do the things that he's done 
and attack our democracy in the way that he has and still get the numbers that he's getting. Um, I don't understand it. Hmm. I, I don't know. I know some people, like my neighbors, they're doing it for economic reasons. They're voting for him for basic economics. Um, but that does you know, for me, I, I can't do it. Mm. There's no way I could do that because. Yeah, Vera, um, I mean, I, I, I hear and feel uh, your your anxiety uh, about that. And I think that's a question that a lot of people are asking today uh, about support for the president and and. Why, in the face of all of the things that uh, that he has said and done over the last four years, perhaps uh, even more people will end up having voted for him this time than they did in 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 2016. And I I, I, I do think that uh, that there's some there's something missing in the way that we talk to each other about this because the expectations, I think, uh, on on both sides don't match with don't match with uh, reality and there is there is uh, some real deep disconnect between people in this country who support this president and people who are absolutely appalled by the idea of this person being president and just as appalled that anybody would uh, would support him so uh, I, again I would counsel patience and calm as we count the votes and see what the result is. But but I think you're right. No matter what the result is, there's going to be this lingering feeling uh, among a lot of Americans that uh, it's about not understanding the rest, uh, the rest of the country. Uh, Zach, I, I, sort of building off of Vera's point here, I want to talk a little with you about the polls and how inaccurate they seem to have been at this point, the last poll taken here in Michigan over or released over the weekend showed Joe Biden ahead of Donald Trump outside the margin of error, which was important not just for the result it was predicting, but for the, the trend it was carrying that Joe Biden had been building support for the last couple of weeks as the president stayed flat. Uh, and so there was a real sense that uh, even if that number wasn't quite right, that the trend suggested a bigger win. Uh, what's what's the deal with polling? Are we are we are we fundamentally off base in the way that that works? And are there huge changes that need to happen there? I've been screaming for this for year, for four years, mm-hmm. and I feel like I'm screaming into the void against what I like to call the media polling political. Uh, consultant industrial complex that all <laughs> kind of relies uh, and feeds off of polling. Um, you know, uh, I think the, the the general average of public polls showed Biden up something like eight to nine points in mm-hmm. Michigan. I'm mm-hmm. just going to talk about Michigan, not mm-hmm. nationally. Right. That's sort of right. My experiences. And, you know, I, it, it I just I looked at it. I thought, you know, I mean, I I have thought for some time. I've written for some time that Biden is going to win Michigan. It looks like he's probably going to win Michigan. But one thing that I kept telling people is, 
I don't know if it's going to be really close or by a lot uh, because polls just don't seem to are incapable, at least in Michigan, of accounting for turnout surges and what the actual electorate is going to look like. Mm. Um, it's been the case for several years. Um, and, you know, I'm sure a lot of pollsters are going to hide behind the old saw of, well, they're just a moment in time. Well, no, I'm sorry. You, you can't have a poll that comes out a couple days before the election that says somebody's up by seven to 10 points, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, and hide behind that. Now, it's not all on the pollsters. And this is why I, I come after my friends and colleagues in the media. No one seems to know how to report on polls. Mm-hmm. It's always like so-and-so leads, even when it's one or two points. Or, um, you know, I think we had an epic MRA poll over the summer that preposterously had Biden up by 16. Mm-hmm. A subsequent poll from them had it down to like 8 to 10. And, you know, the stories were written about it as though the race was tightening. And I said, no, it's not tightening. The first poll was just ridiculous. Yeah. I, I mean, it's just People just need to take it for what it is. It's survey data, and it's at the mercy of whoever responds to the surveys. You know, pollsters make their their best efforts. Um, But, you know, I I have preferred for several years to look more at, like, raw raw voting data and trends of that nature. And even that, you know, just to hold myself accountable, I think is going to fall a bit short in this election. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I expected Democrats to do much better in Oakland County. Yeah. Then it appears they're going to do based on a variety of factors. And that's that's not going to happen. So, yeah, I think, you know, I, I if it, we don't pay for polling at Gongwer because I just don't see the value in it. Yeah. I, I'll put it that way. Wow. Wow. OK, we're going to take a quick break and when we come back. We'll continue this conversation about election 2020 and the aftermath. We're going to keep Zach Gorchow for another segment and we're going to get to more of your calls. Glenn in the cast corridor, Mark in Detroit, Judy in Detroit. We'll hear from you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. News, music, culture, and community. Every day on 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and it is the day after Election Day 2020. I'm talking with Zach Gorchow, executive editor and publisher of Gongwar News Service in Lansing, about what happened yesterday and what's happening Today, as we count the votes, count all of the votes here in Michigan and around the country to determine who the winner is in the presidential race and the other races and who are the losers. Uh, As always, we want to hear from you. How are you feeling about the election yesterday? How are you feeling about the results as they come in? Are you able to stay patient and wait for them to count? Or are you feeling anxious about how things are going and you want it to Hurry up and be over. As always, the number here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we will try to work you into the conversation. Let's go to Glenn in the Cass Corridor. Glenn, what's on your mind? Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. 
Um, I went to bed about 10 o'clock, 10.30 last night, and I was I was pretty frightened. Woke up this morning, probably 5 o'clock, and I was too scared to turn on the radio. Finally, I turned on the cla- classic. Well, what, for, I looked at the uh, free press, and I saw what was going on with Biden in Michigan. And But when I saw Peter's, I just had to turn on some classical music. I just can't understand in a state that's a majority Democratic and we have Peters is an incumbent and he doesn't get the support of Oakland County where he's from. I just don't understand what's going on. Hmm. I mean, I can understand the national race, but in Michigan, how does Peters lose? He's incumbent. Hmm. Please. Uh, Good question. Glenn, and I appreciate the call. Zach Gorchow, explain, take us a little deeper into this, into this race. There, are, I, I, I know that there are a number of different dynamics at play there. One of them is that Peters is standing for re-election the first time to the Senate, and those races are always closer than others. Uh, another dynamic is that John James is a totally different candidate, at least in the way he presents himself, in 2020 than he was in 2018 when he ran against Debbie Stabenow. This was a much more effective message, I think, uh, that he put forward. But but give me your sense of, of what's going on there. So just to be clear, you know, not all hope is not lost for Peters. He's narrowed the gap now to 25,000 votes since we started talking. Uh, and as votes from Democratic strongholds continue to come in, you know, he has a good chance of of going ahead. Uh, but again, it is very close. I, I just think Peters, uh, you know, he, he just doesn't seem to excite Democrats. And uh, you look at, you know, how did all the success Democrats had statewide in 2018, um, you know, those almost all, basically all women candidates. Gary Peters is a older uh, white male who is not known as being very charismatic, hmm. uh, never has been. Um, you know, he's known as, you know, being a pretty hardworking uh, legislator and, you know, so forth. But, um, you know, you, in today's day and age, you, you've got to um, touch people in some way. You've got to touch a nerve, excite people. Hmm. And that, that's been an issue for him. Um, you know, he, he ran a very cautious campaign. Uh, if Peters does lose, I, again, I, you know, I'm not making any predictions. It's, it's way too close to call. Yeah. I think there will be a lot of questions asked about some of the strategic decisions they made, uh, you know, not debating John James. Uh, and I personally think that that is, you know, that was on Gary Peters, that debates didn't happen. Uh, James was, you know, had proposed a couple debates on network television in Detroit and Grand Rapids, and Peters never uh, would you know insisted on debates on public television instead? Mm-hmm. You know why he wouldn't agree to debate James? I'll I, I don't think I'll ever understand that. Uh, you know Peters has been through the wars; he knows how to do this, uh, and he's not that well known. So wouldn't he have wanted to the the chance for more exposure? But again, that I don't want to do a postmortem yet. When he could still very well win, maybe he ends up winning by a decent amount if there's still a ton of Democratic vote to come in. Yeah. Um, but I think you know James. Uh, had some really good messages. He ran basically as a nonpartisan, even though he is a conservative Republican. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, his his ads, I thought, met 
what the, this moment is more about, you know, trying to bring people together, um, you know, stopping the screaming in Washington. And I know the Democrats, it just drives them nuts because James is a strong supporter of President Trump, who I don't <laughs> think anybody would see as somebody who's looking to bring people together. Right. But, you know, the ads, he had some really good ads. And I thought Peter's ads were very uh, just uh, they were pretty dry. Out. Yeah, no, they yeah, were very dry. dry. It really felt like something out of 2006, you know, just sort of a laundry list of issues that he supports. Um, there, You know, he was I, I thought he really missed out on the kind of advertising message that re- he did in 2014 that resonated. Yeah. Um, again, this could all be just worthless Monday morning quarterbacking if he ends up winning. But why is this race so close? Those are the reasons, I think. Yeah. Okay, Zach Gorchow, executive editor and publisher of Gongwar News Service in Lansing. It's always great to have you on Detroit today, but especially today, given uh, the subject matter, having somebody with your experience and knowledge of our state and politics and elections is just wonderful. So thank you very much for joining us. Great to be with you, Stephen. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we are going to continue our recap of last night and cast forward into the things that we are going to be talking about and arguing about in this country for some time with Farai Chidea, journalist, author, and host of the new radio show and podcast, Our Body Politic. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. Judy in Detroit, Mark in Detroit, we'll hear from you next as well. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. It is the day after Election Day. We're starting to unpack all of the things that happened and all the things that are going to happen as we continue to count the votes and figure out who wins, who loses, and where we go from here, not just in the presidency, but of course also in the U.S. Senate and in dozens of local races here in the state of Michigan. We want to change the subject and the tone just a little for the rest of the show, though, and talk some about the cultural and other kinds of uh, discussion-related dynamics that have come out of campaign 2020 and will be with us long after. I don't think anybody is uh, confused about the fact that this is maybe the most divided nation any of us has lived in uh, at any time, and that the those divisions are about very old narratives in this country, uh, and that we don't have a whole lot of hope, I think, uh, of resolving those divisions. Elections are not the way to do it in the first place, but even beyond voting. We just are not getting to the place where we can solve some of these issues. Farai Judea is a journalist, author, and host of the new radio show and podcast, Our Body Politic. And among people who are observing this cultural dynamic in this country, she is one of 
the most interesting thinkers. Uh, if you don't follow her on Twitter, you should. Since the polls closed yesterday, she has been talking not just about what these results are, but what about these results? What do they tell us about ourselves, about our country, and about our future? Farai Judea, welcome back to Detroit Today. Stephen, thank you so much. I mean, uh, I will say that I am pretty much 0% shocked about where we are. This is, I thought we would end up in a log jam when a lot of people were overconfident about a Biden victory and some were overconfident about a Trump victory. But I feel like I could go on a filibuster, so I'm just going to say <laughs> something and then stop so we can have a conversation, not a monologue. But Journalists have been trying to fact check a culture war and not understanding that we are living in a post fact era mm. doesn't mean that we will we won't return to a fact based era. But the level of culture war that has been fought and we saw a congressional candidate who's a QAnoner win mm -hmm. um, among many candidates last night. We as journalists have to be more culturally competent in understanding communities, understanding narrative, and understanding what our role is. And if our role is championing the truth, it has to include being aware of all the different ways that people perceive truth and the weaponization of truth that has undercut our society and democracy. And I don't think we were up to the task. We, we not you and me, but much of journalism still thought that the game was similar to the pre-2016 election. Mm. Um, so I'll, I'm just going to start with that. Yeah, no, no, that's a great place to start. And and I want to go back four years to 2016 when you wrote an essay after the election that was titled Call to Whiteness. And you say yep. this is about, quote, the failure of both establishment whiteness plus the media to recognize the rise of white nationalism in government and civil society. You tweeted this morning that we didn't do much better in 2020. And, and that really cuts to the chase of this, that, that this is about race and racism, the narrative that has played out since the very beginning of this country and that we just have not been able to resolve in a just way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, I am someone, there's a, a saying by Bell Hooks that patriarchy has no gender. Um, most people mm. who act in patriarchal ways are men, but patriarchy is an ideology. And I would also say white supremacy has no race. It is an ideology. And we have seen certain black people and Latinos embracing this idea that if only we could act more like X than we could have Y. Mm. And that is a manifestation of white supremacy. And it comes, I think, from um, a fear-based mindset about what's possible for people of color in America. But you can be forgiven to a certain extent for having a fear-based mindset. I choose not to live in it, but I understand where it comes from. And then there are other people who were just clearly opportunists who are really happy. I, I have a you know, I wouldn't even call him a colleague, but someone who I've known for a long time from the political punditry game, 
who's black and Republican and who says there's a lot of money to be made in Trump Mm -hmm. and is very clear that this is transactional for him. And then I know many other black Republicans, including ones in my family, who are politically, you know, just out in the cold with no one who represents their values. You know, they are fiscal and social conservatives, and they have a right to be fiscal and social conservatives, but the party that supposedly represents fiscal and social conservatives doesn't represent them. So I'm not trying to force everyone to be progressive, for example, but we live in a system where intelligent, well-meaning conservatives of color have bad options, you know? Um, I mean, in some ways, in some ways, the the struggles, the electoral struggles that the Republican Party has nationally, and and when I say that, what I mean is that, that, that it is almost impossible now for a Republican to win the popular vote. Uh, in a presidential election. It has only happened one time in the last 32 years. Um, but but that is is sort of uh, undermined by its strength, the GOP's strength in small rural states who have really homogenous populations and allow it to continue its electoral competitive nature. But if not for that, I feel like there would be a different conservative party that might have overtaken the GOP at some point, a conservative party that might include uh, conservative African-Americans and conservative Latinos who don't go along with the white supremacist dynamics of the GOP, but but want conservative values to, to, to be something that they can vote for. And it's really it's really interesting to see how much longer that is taking in this century than it would have uh, in, in past centuries, in part because of that, that geographic isolation that leads to GOP dominance. Yeah, well, there's, yeah, the, the geography of the Electoral College, we can't forget that the Electoral College protects the interests of yes. rural Americans over the interests of urban Americans and protects the interests of small states over large states. And as much as you can argue there should be some of that. I think that we know that it's, many of us believe, and I am one of them, that it has become disproportionate and effectively disenfranchising of many voters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there there are many voters in many states that effectively have no say in the presidential election because yeah. of the way the Electoral College works. Um, I also feel like you know, we are in a moment that is a global moment. There's a moment of rising authoritarianism, pandemic, fear of economic collapse that is not at all limited to the United States. But what is different here is that our Constitution was forged in a way that excluded the democratic participation of black people, Native Americans, women, non-landowning white men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we we have a lot of repair work. So when people start talking, especially women, about being a constitutional originalist, I'm like, do you want to get so original so that you don't have a vote? Because right. that's what an original <laughs> That's what the original be. was, right? Yeah, you, <laughs> you would have no vote, no ability to own property, no ability to have a career. So how originalist are we really being? You know, people like to use terms like that when it's convenient to them. But then when you're like, but you literally could not exist as the person you are today if 
you truly were an originalist. Um, so I think that um, a lot of people are just getting fatigued with um, how political rhetoric, including how it often gets filtered through media, doesn't reflect lived experience. Like I have a very dear friend who's a white political progressive who grew up in a working class community in eastern Ohio, and her mom is a Trump voter. And she was talking about how her mom, who teaches GED, mm-hmm. um, only tells the conservative students to vote and not the liberals. And my friend was like, that's evil. <laughs> and I was like, but it's funny, though. You know, I mean, you can say, like, at this point, uh, America has become quite literally a dark comedy in some ways. It's like the things that we are doing to act out are so childish and so un-American, except that they are American. Um, you know, but I don't, I haven't given up on this country yet, yeah. but I think that it wouldn't it have been great if we had really heeded the wake up call of 2016 and the call to whiteness, that essay I wrote, I got the sweetest uh, tweet today. Somebody was like, I read this tweet when I was a sophomore in high school and it's the best distillation, <laughs> you know, of the issues ever. And that's the kind of tweet that keeps you going. But basically what I argue in that piece is that establishment whiteness, which is the white interest that, that say, America is meritocratic and that capitalism works, did not recognize the existential threat posed by the rise of white nationalism in government, sure. including Stephen Miller, Steve Bannon, et cetera. And the president himself, yeah. you know, establishment whiteness was pretty comfortable thinking that it still had a path to dominance. And I think what we can say is that 2020, if 2020 isn't a wake-up call to what I call establishment whiteness, that they are no longer on top of the hill, I don't know what will be. And I also can't control it. You know, one of the reasons I started the radio show Our Body Politic is that I like to say women of color are on the save our own butts plan. We cannot wait for the government to save our butts. We cannot wait for the economy to save our butts. We have to save each other and those around us. And to me, that's a big tent. I live in a very multiracial friend and family circle, you know, and an international one as well. So by saving my own butt, hopefully I save some white people, some people in Zimbabwe and South Africa, whatever. But I can't wait for this country to take care yeah. of my interest. Yeah. We have to do it ourselves. Yeah. So so I want to play a clip of uh, an exchange I had with one of our listeners a few weeks before the election. We had panels of voters that we talked to on Fridays from around Metro Detroit, different kinds of voters, different demographics, uh, different parts of our geography here. Um, and this particular voter was somebody who was from Macomb County, uh, a white woman in Macomb County, who had voted twice for Barack Obama and then voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and then voted Democratic in the governor's race here in 2018. And so I was asking her about what she was doing this year and she said she was going to vote for for Donald Trump and I and I pushed a little bit on her about um why she was voting for Trump and I said you know we were talking about issues of race and inequality and why it didn't bother her that the president had said the things he had said and done the things he'd done with regard to black and brown people I want to 
I want you to listen to her response to what I asked. The, the, the president has said these things often with a smile on his face about African-Americans, about brown people in this country, about uh, immigrants. Think, oh, that doesn't bother you? I think you. we can go back and say the same thing about Joe Biden. No, we can't. No, we cannot. We cannot. That's not true, Jacqueline. That's not true. We can't. Joe Biden has never said the things that President Trump has said. Never. And and even if it did, this idea that it doesn't matter is what I guess I'm trying to get you to, to explain to me. Why why doesn't that which affects me and my children and my family, my community, why doesn't that matter more in your choice? Uh, probably because it doesn't directly affect me. There are bigger issues for me. Yeah. Um, economic issues, uh, education issues that affect me more. There are economic issues that affect me more. That's what she said. Um, oh, yeah. That's, uh, that's part of it. But I, I don't think that's all of it. It's it's not. And and I guess I guess what I'm what the reason I wanted you to hear that is I think yep. I think there is a again, this fundamental disconnect between mm-hmm. the world that you live in and I live in. Uh, and maybe a lot of our listeners live in, and the world that someone like Jacqueline lives in. And she lives just a few miles, literally, from me here in Metro Detroit. Um, but it's like another world where, where, as she said, race and racism don't matter. They don't matter as much as, as other things. And, and I think when you distill it down to that, when you distill it down to that, difference, it is really hard to think of how we can manage together in in a single nation. Yeah. Now, I mean, I think also one of the things that I I think about a lot and I study a lot, but I can't do anything about is that the idea of economic security coming from an attachment to white supremacy Mm is a false one, whether you are a white person or a non-white person who supports this framework um, in which, you know, I will be frank, the current president operates and many of his close advisors. We are not actually better off than we were four years ago. And all the people who keep saying that that's the reason that they voted for the president What good are lower taxes when, first of all, you're not in an income bracket to actually benefit from them? And second, some of your relatives are dead. I mean, this is the world we're living in, but there has been such a kind of gamesmanship. And, you know, I'm someone who I spent the last election cycle interviewing voters of all type, including Trump voters, And there were three different um, stories I did on Trump voters that showed very different demographics within that umbrella. Mm -hmm. One was motivated by, you know, sort of Rust Belt politics, the idea that the president would bring back industry, which he hasn't, and also by xenophobia. One was, like I said, patriarchy has no gender. One was a woman who was 
definitely misogynistic towards Clinton. And one were um, a family of evangelicals motivated by the desire to end abortion. So I don't put the same labels on everyone. Mm -hmm. But what I think has been an almost universal fallacy among, for example, the president's supporters is that they will do better. I mean, the the only people really doing better right now are the hyper-wealthy, the centimillionaires and the billionaires. If you are not in that group, you're probably not doing better. I mean, so when people use economics to veil other reasons for having political affinity, that too is very American. It's a lot easier to talk about money than it is to talk about race, Mm. you know? Mm. Wow. Okay. Farai Chidea, it is always, always, always really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Uh, Tell me what you think we're headed for. I've got about uh, 30 seconds left. Uh, what, what, what's the outcome of this election? I will go out on a limb and say that I think Biden will win and there will be widespread violence, political violence, because it's being incited. Mm. We'll see if I'm right. Yeah. Wow. Okay, Farai, uh, great to have you here with us. And again, thanks so much for, for, for joining us. Thanks, Stephen. Yeah. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. We will be back tomorrow. We do not have a plan for tomorrow's show, which shouldn't be surprising because there's still so much in the balance. But remember, the important thing is to count the votes, count the votes, count the votes, count every vote, and remain calm. Spend some time today not thinking about politics. Spend some time today not looking at social media or the 24-hour news channels. Spend some time thinking about all of the people who have voted in this election, which is, I think, still the biggest win we could possibly have hoped for. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. It's your connection to news and music and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.